Hi, this is Jay Baer of Convince and Convert Consulting, and welcome to the new Content Experience Show. Content Experience is the new content marketing. It's not only about reaching audiences where they are, but engaging them with personalized, useful content that matters. On the Content Experience Show, we share strategies, tips, and real-world examples of how leaders are taking their content marketing to the next level. Now, here's your hosts, Randy Frisch from Uberflip and Anna Harak from Convince and Convert Consulting. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Content Experience Show podcast. This is Anna Harak from Convince and Convert, and I am joined by the always amazing Randy Frisch from Uberflip. Today, we have an amazing guest. I know we say that a lot, but we actually have the Robert Rose on. I'm sure many of you have seen him speak at uh, Content Marketing World every year. Um, he's an author, podcaster, speaker. I mean, he's done it all within the entire content marketing space. So you know him. But Randy and I got to pick his brain on a few things today, and we got to talk about a lot of cool stuff. Randy, you kicked it off with like the big question about strategy. You dove right in. Yeah. You know, what I love about Robert is we can have real conversations with him. I mean, yeah. you know, anytime I'm at an event with Robert, Robert's behind content marketing world in a big way, behind content tech now, which we talk a little bit about. Him and I will just have fun debates, right? Like, and yeah. it's... You know, not like those safe debates where it's like one of those panels and everyone's like, oh, I agree. And I agree with you. And oh, you're so smart. <laughs> right, it's just right. like, you know, we'll really take a side and sometimes not the same side and just talk it through. But yeah. in, and so as a warning, I feel like this podcast was longer than most of them that we do. But I personally did, was not cutting Robert short, right? It's no, just kind of like, yeah. If There's you've got the president part. on, I mean... Typically, if you have the president on, you just let them go, right? <laughs> I don't know where to go from that necessarily. Yeah, I don't know either. things, but it's you know Canadian, what? We're it's, gonna, the Canadian, it's the Canadian in me. I can see. I was just thinking of Justin. You don't Trudeau. have to comment. So, yeah. Because, yeah. Look, if we were interviewing Justin Trudeau, I wouldn't cut him off. Let's there you go. There you go. That, probably for different reasons. You'd have, yes. That would have to be a face-to-face, right? Yes. No, but yeah, <laughs> this really was a great podcast. And Robert drops a ton of gold, as usual, on this. Um, and I'm super jelly because he gets to interview Henry Rollins. But that, again, is another podcast. So, um, Randy, let's hear about all the amazing things he had to say. I think you brought him in. So let's kick it off. Hey, Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I feel like it was just a few weeks ago that you and I were chatting and we were talking about how content can be more strategic, right? Like getting out of the weeds of thinking of content as something that we just create and move on, but something that can be a strategic function in our org. And I, I know that you preach about that all the time. Maybe for those who don't know you as well as I do, you can kind of say, where does that idea come from and what is that? How does that fall into your every day? Like, what is a day in your life preaching about strategic content look like? <laughs> well, so first of all, thank you for having me. This is this is totally fun. And yes, well, where does it come from? It comes, I don't know, but maybe this is, I don't know how, what this says about my days, but uh, I, I spend my days doing exactly this. So either that's a really sad thing or a really fun thing, but mostly it comes from the... I, I think it depends you know, who you're talking to on that. Oh, right? of course. Absolutely <laughs> right. Yeah. We're either, we're, we're either sadly, you know, 
Don Quixote like, you know, tilting at windmills or or we are, you know, <laughs> or having a fun adventure trying to solve a very big problem for business, one of the two. You know, it, it does come from personal experience with working as many brands as we have. The 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 challenge, the biggest challenge that we see these days in content marketing is not how to start something new. It's to fix something that's broken. You know, the last 10 years really have encouraged businesses to create content for marketing purposes. And when we say content, we mean editorial, thought leadership, great experiences, as um, you uh, have uh, come to call them in, in your wonderful book. And these experiences themselves are, are often in many businesses disjointed. The content professionals in business, what we see is so often are, quite frankly, a team that is expected to be an on-demand vending machine of content. They, are, they have content requested from sales and from the C-suite and from demand generation teams and from customer service teams and from all these different parts of the business. And they just sort of ad hoc throw content against the wall. And the challenge now is that they can't scale it and it's broken and they can't measure it and they can't really understand how they're delivering value. So they can't measure it. And the fix for all of that in this really kind of ironic way is to sort of look at getting rid of all of that and figuring out how to make content a much more forward-leaning, a strategic function in the business that leads with editorial and these experiences and then supports the rest of the business through supplying assets as needed. In other words, if we start with content, start with the experience, start with the measurement goals, and start with how do we add value to the customer's life and make content a strategic operation, a model, if you will, now, all of a sudden, adding a merchandising aspect of how we can add assets into the business becomes a very, you know, secondary, important, but, you know, measurable uh, effect. And, and it's this, it's, it's, a, it's a very subtle but important distinction because moving out of that model, that paradigm of we're here to provide assets to the organization is a very classic, we're going to provide brochures and ads and one sheets mm -hmm. and collateral material to the business. Content is just different. It's just, if we're not thinking first about the experience, we're ultimately not going to be able to scale it, not going to be able to measure it, and ultimately, you know, not succeed as much as we might. So I, I love that whole opening comment. I, I feel like you've teed up the next half hour that we're going to spend together better than either of Anna, Anna and I could have. Now, I, I want to get into like, how do we do this though? Because it's one thing to say this, and, and I see what you're talking about, right? In so many orgs, especially the larger ones, you end up with these pockets of content creators, even worse, right? Like it's, it's not just one group That's saying, right. okay, we're going to service whatever's thrown at us. It's like, you know, three different groups or 30 different groups, depending on the size of the org or more, who are now all of a sudden creating all these silos of content that don't connect with each other. So is, is it fair to say that, that part of this is, as you put it, you know, making it a more strategic top of the organization and I guess my question is, who is that? Is it the CMO or, or is this a CEO thing? And, you know, when you're out there on the road, what are you seeing in terms of some of the better companies you interact with? It's shifting a bit. It used to be, and I'm, I'll bet that this will resonate with you and the sort of what you're seeing with your clients as well. It used to be, you know, even three, five years ago that this was a largely practitioner-driven 
idea, right? Practitioners in the business that were trying to solve a point solution. What do we say on social media? What do we say on our landing pages? What do we do about our blog? What do we do about creating all this content for the lead funnel? And the business kind of went, okay, yeah, we need to create content. And unfortunately built these pockets, as you called them, of content creators that are trying to supply assets to meet all those various needs. And so where we see the shift really moving now is two, two places. One is to say, how can we want de-silo content and sort of create a more, whether it's, you know, whether it's a, you know, and we have different models for this that we go through in our workshops and whatnot, but, you know, whether it's a separate content department, which is kind of a isolated and has the risk of becoming yet another silo, but a very focused editorial thought leadership content production team or whether you've got a more integrated, what we might call a hybrid model of where content itself is a strategic function, like accounting or product development or R&D, but kind of fits into the fabric of everybody else's job and really putting some organization to it and trying to figure out how to organize it in a much more forward-leaning way. That does require usually the participation of the CMO or the VP or some level of executive sponsorship because, quite frankly, that change is a business change and it really is changing the way the org is structured, the way that people do their jobs, removal of the competition for content and assets and how they're getting used and a much more strategic approach to technology. And so we're seeing a shift now where, yeah, the CMO now is paying a lot more attention to this. And that's really promising. Though The one thing that I think I love, especially that you're saying, is that the whole organization has to be involved from you know the CMO all the way down to the people who are actually creating the content. It has to be this, everybody has to be on the same page. And I haven't jumped in much until yet, but the whole thing that I keep screaming internally I had is documented content strategy, documented content strategy, documented content strategy. Because I think you know this is one thing that I'm still seeing is missing and really the key to exactly what you're talking about, which is all of these disconnected silos and, you know, thinking about it in terms of just fulfilling an asset in the in the moment of what's needed rather than thinking strategically and, and not to beat a dead horse. But it seems like this is something that is still really missing within the community. Oh, my gosh, yes. I mean, it's the biggest, when we do our research every year, this is the yep. biggest gap, right? Where we see those that are succeeding versus those that are flailing at this a documented strategy, which when we get, I mean, when we peel that back, it's like, okay, really? I mean, is it in a Microsoft Word file and we've actually printed it? No, it just means that it's real. Right. It's actually something that people can point to and say, this is what we have signed up to do as a strategic function in our business. Basically, the business has, has made it real for them. It has become a strategic function where we have measurable goals, we have roles, responsibilities, people are getting paid to do this. It is a leading function, you know, in our, you know, in our marketing strategy and marketing mix rather than sort of just everybody's job and nobody's strategy. Yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's insane, you know, just even reiterating what you're saying about the, the annual report that comes out, the benchmarks and budgets report. Every year, I'm so shocked that that number just doesn't seem to budge. Like it, it moves up and down slightly on, you know, who has a documented content strategy, but it is still... I mean, it is the cornerstone for success. And again, not to beat a dead horse, but, um, you know, I think even in terms of, you know, the different silos that have different numbers that they're held accountable to or different goals and objectives, it's like this document has to be bigger than all of us. And it's really what is the guiding path for everybody. 
It's a fear thing, right? It's a, it's, you know, it's a new, this is a new muscle for most businesses. And, you know, so many businesses sort of swung the pendulum, you know, over the last 18 years as it'll raise head. So many businesses swung the marketing pendulum to being sales driven. And so there is a short termism that is alive and well in so many businesses, which is how do we solve something tomorrow? How do we actually get a result today, this week, this month? And when you bring content into that, you know, that, that, that mix, it's not going to solve that problem. You've got to make a business case for saying what part of our portfolio in our integrated marketing mix is content going to play because it is a long-term value investment. It is, you know, the Warren Buffett of investing, right? This is a long-term thing that is going to have to play an important role over time. Um, And it's not, you know, I've got CFOs and CMOs coming to me saying, we want to do content marketing and tell me how I can show this and provide a result in the next month. And my answer is, well, the way you start is by not. Don't, the content marketing is not going to solve that issue. Go do a paid media campaign, go figure something else out because content marketing, it's not that you can't measure it immediately. It's that it's not going to provide contribution to the business immediately. Nice. I love it. Yes. And I want to dig much more into that because I think we're getting into a really good spot here about um, exactly what the role is of content marketing and how we've kind of mislabeled it or misaligned uh, it with our goals and objectives. But before we do, we're going to take a super quick break. So everybody stick around. We're just going to hear from our sponsors real quick. And then we are going to be back with Robert Rose. Hi, friends. This is Jay Bear from Convince and Convert, reminding you that this show, the Connect Show podcast, is brought to you by Uberflip, the number one content experience platform. Do you ever wonder how content experience affects your marketing results? Well, you can find out in the first ever content experience report, where Uberflip uncovers eight data science-backed insights to boost your content engagement and your conversions. It's a killer report, and you do not want to miss it. Get your free copy right now at uberflip.com slash connex show report. That's uberflip.com slash connex show report. And the show is also brought to you by our team at Convince and Convert Consulting. If you've got a terrific content marketing program, but you want to take it to the very next level, we can help. Convince and Convert works with the world's most iconic brands to increase the effectiveness of their content marketing, social media marketing, digital marketing, and word of mouth marketing. Find us at convinceandconvert.com. All right, Robert. So I I feel like we were tiptoeing on this idea that if we don't fix content marketing from a more strategic lens and it, it's going to a very scary dark place right and you know sometimes I, I i've said this maybe to both of you before I, I worry that that's kind of what's happened with social in some organizations and that you know I, i'm going to get in trouble with someone by saying this whether it's jay bear or whether it's you know the social person on my own team who's extremely valuable but uh you know sometimes it's as though we haven't figured out how to make that channel work and it's got a bad view from you know some of the other people in the organization even though i know the value it has to us from a distribution perspective do, do you worry about the same with content robert like do you think we're do you think if we don't change the way we approach content that we could see the same outcomes I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, the, here's the, here's the, uh, you know, I don't know whether you want to call it the dirty secret or the, you know, unpeeling the bandaid to see the scar, whatever the <laughs> belabored metaphor might be. But the, the challenge that I see so often is a conflation of channel and content. And we, and, and we, we have classically been trained as marketers to think 
the format first, really, and then the content. In other words, we always start, we have historically started by saying, what, you know, I need a, I need a social post, I need a white paper, I need a blog post, I need an ad campaign, I need an email, and then we go, great, now we have a format, what kind of content should we pour into it? And of course, the real value these days is to reverse that thinking and say, what's the story, what's the experience we want to create, and then figure out all of the channels that it should be appropriate for. The challenge I see with social right now is that, you know, despite what we may still be grasping onto, it, it has shifted into broadcast media. You know, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter are the ABC, CBS, and NBC of our time. They are broadcast media on which we pay to put messages in front of audiences. And sometimes we get a little bit of shareability. As in a promotion channel, as a targeted promotional effort, social media is fantastic. It's wonderful. It's a, a wonderful paid media that can help us promote things that we want to pull people into other experiences. As an experience itself, I, you know, I think it's going into a very weird, you know, like you said, dark place. And if we don't figure out a content strategy first, the same can apply to blogs and the same might apply to landing pages and the same might apply to digital hubs and to mobile experiences and all of the sort of different experiences we're creating is if we don't recognize how they're shifting and changing and our consumers are using them, it's, you know, so it has to start with what experiences are we trying to create for customers? Then where do we want to go create those experiences? Yeah, I, I think that's really well put. It's really interesting too, right? I, I remember when the whole thing was to create engagement on the social channel, right? Like that's where we wanted people to be. Right. And we would build these unique experiences there. Remember when like, Everyone was building like Facebook apps, right? Um, right. Well, they were saying you could replace your web website with the Facebook page, right? People, right. That was an actual strategy. Did. That was an actual but, proposed strategy. But the problem, and, and I'll give you know yourself and Joe a lot of credit because I always use the definition that, that existed at Content Marketing Institute of Content Marketing was this idea of owned content, right? And and the challenge with all those these these experiences we're talking about, like Facebook, LinkedIn, is we don't own that. And I think that's where a lot of us struggle to figure out. And, and as a result, all we do there now is we, you know, the, the meat is really the, the link out, right? It's, it's the link back. But the next challenge is how do we make sure, as you put it, that the experiences that we're linking people to on our own properties are rich, are engaging, et cetera. Otherwise, we're just going to try and link them somewhere fucking else that we don't own again, right? It's, it's just going to be this vicious circle. It's such a great point. And for us, the, the idea of owning a channel, you know, kind, you know this is the, it, it gets to sort of the same thing that I've been saying in workshops and advisory sessions, which is the content itself is kind of valueless. It, you know, I don't really care about the content that much if I'm a business. What I care about is the relationship that it helps me develop with my consumers. And so the relationship that I can have consumers, I have two choices. One is I can depend upon a third party to help me develop that and maintain that relationship. And I can depend upon that third party to say, this is when you can and this is when you can't send out your message or have a relationship with your consumer. Or I can develop an experience and through the acquisition of data and through the acquisition and an engagement with that audience, develop and maintain that relationship on my choosing that's just more valuable. There's just no debate about that. That is more valuable if I get to choose as the business when I get to address my audiences. 
And so it may be smaller in nature and, you know, and I may use the broadcast audience to pull those people into my sphere of influence, but it's just more valuable. And you can see this happening at the tectonic level, right? Look at every acquisition that companies like Amazon, Apple, Microsoft, they're all making acquisitions that give them what? Direct access and relationship with audiences. You know, you look at a, an acquisition of Microsoft of GitHub. Microsoft didn't buy GitHub because it had this amazing software in it. Microsoft bought GitHub because it had direct access to audiences that are one of the most hardest to reach on the planet, which are, of course, computer software engineers. Access to audiences is the key to being able to influence them and ultimately, you know, sell more stuff that we have to sell. But even in addition to access, one of the things, and Robert, I love your feedback on this. One of the things that I see is, you know, even with the brands that you just mentioned, right, with Amazon and Whole Foods, they're still providing things that their audiences want. So even in addition to access to audiences, it's really about providing experiences that audiences want as well. And there's this funny thing that kind of happens that I've noticed with marketers. When we go in and we start to market things, we think like marketers and we forget that we were ever at one point a consumer ourselves. And so when (laughs) we create these things, we don't stop and say like, would I actually want this or would I actually find value in this? And a lot of times it seems like we don't even pass the sniff test on ourselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, are, are you <laughs> suggesting that marketers do things that they wouldn't themselves do? <laughs> all, 100% yeah. all day long. Yes, yeah, I'm making exactly. that statement right now that, that I <laughs> people would to go and put a mirror up to their own, or their own efforts and their own campaigns and say, would I actually interact with that? Most of the time, the answer might be no. There is gambling going on in the casino. I am shocked. <laughs> I am shocked to hear such a thing. Right. Um, that's exactly right. I mean, we and, and, you know, the funny thing is, is that we even do it with our nose pinched, right? You know, right. so many businesses I know I go into where they're saying, yeah, we're doing this because sales wants us to, or the VP wants us to, and we're going to hold our nose and do it. And it commands a certain level of budget simply because this is the classic example of this. I, and this still happens to this day is where I'll go into a manufacturing or a CPG company, consumer packaged goods company. And they'll say, we have X amount of dollars still devoted to billboards. And you say, great, why billboards? And they say, because our main, the CEO of our main distributor drives down this road every day to his work. And if he doesn't see us actually advertising on this billboard, he'll think we're not marketing and thus we're failing. And so we are still doing these things, even though we know for a fact that they're not productive. It's crazy. Just how, yeah, sort of appeasing different audiences can get us into those situations. That's right. Now, there's, there's something to that, right? You know, when yeah. the CEO says, I want it blue, it's going to be blue, right? I mean, if there's just no, I mean, you don't argue with that. But there are certain things that we continue to do that we continue to, you know, and this is especially true in larger organizations where there's this institutional momentum. You know, one of my favorite things to do is to go in and have a, you know, a meeting with a cross-functional team, PR and social media, um, marketing demand generation, the brand team. And I say, today, I just want you to full stop. Like, no more content. None. Zero. No more blog posts. No more social media posts. No more emails. No more white papers. No more website up. No. Just full stop the presses on all content. And then I said, who would miss it? Who, like, who, who would call up and say, hey, I really miss your Friday afternoon tweet. Hey, I really miss that email newsletter that you send out every Friday. And if the only answer is our boss, 
we know we need to make a change. And there's probably something we can stop doing instead of thinking of all of the things that we are doing to deliver, quote unquote, the omni-channel experience. That's a, that's a great challenge, Robert. I, I, I like that. I think every marketer should go in and kind of do an audit based on that. So I, I've got a bit of a tangent. And this is going to almost feel like I, I'm about to start another podcast. But I, I was thinking back to one of... <laughs> One of your points earlier where you referred to some of these different channels that people have as the, you know, the modern day ABCs and NBCs and things like that. And right. I, I, was th- I was thinking about that over the last few minutes and, and I thought to myself, you know, I, I got an email the other day. I mean, I'm Canadian, as a lot of our listeners know. I, I always talk about what I miss out on. Uh, you guys miss out on some good cereals we have, but, you know, I, I miss out on some of your content sometimes. Uh, and, you know, one of the things is you guys now have YouTube TV. Right. Um, which I don't know if That's people right. know what this thing is, but I've just started to learn about it because we don't have it here yet. Uh, and it's, it's this idea that you can get regular channels on YouTube that, you know, typically you would have subscribed to, you know, I, I guess like a Comcast or whoever down, down south of the border. And, and I think that that's this like further blurring of the lines, like you said, of like, where, where are we competing with it there and who's, where does a message actually going to exist? Because, you know, now we can be on, again, CBS, NBC, ABC amongst that, intermingled amongst that content. And what do you think that that's going to mean for us as marketers when it comes to video content and when it comes to, you know, getting our message into this whole, you know, new world of, of YouTube as much as we thought we figured it out? Yeah, it's a, well, look, as part of the, you know, the overall integrated marketing mix, I think you have opportunities across all of those areas to reach, you know, what I might broadly call broadcast audiences. And that includes broadcast TV. It still includes, to some extent, print, radio, and all of the variants that have come out of that, including things like YouTube television and, and opportunities with Netflix and opportunities that, you know, basically reach audiences where they are. The question is then, what do we do with them? And I think, you know, you bring up a really interesting, you know, and, and perhaps, yes, a topic of a different podcast, you know, conversation, because what I see YouTube TV doing is basically following the path that Netflix laid, right? So let's not forget that Netflix started out as a DVD rental uh, business, then moved quickly into a streaming business, but was really streaming licensed content that they licensed from studios and television networks and all of that to bring in their audience. But what have they been doing over the last four or five years is they've really been diminishing all of their licensing deals and really been promoting what all of their original content as a means of differentiating and decreasing the licensing cost, but of course, increasing the margin that they're getting on every new subscriber that they get. So the real value now in Netflix is as an owned media channel that creates its own content. I think there's a ton to learn there for us as marketers, because what that says to me is that there's value in building our audience and then having them subscribe to something that we create, not something that we license from other people, but something that is our own original creation. And you can see that, you know, writ large on, you know, with brands like Lego, of course, and brands like Red Bull and, you know, others that are sort of more forward leaning when it comes to creating their, not only their own original content, but their own channels with which that there's a, um, I just read about this wonderful microbrewery in Scotland, forgetting their name off the top of my head, Brewdog Breweries. And they're starting an online network 24-7 to do things like 
you know, learn about wine and learn about the best beer and learn how to brew beer. And they're bringing in stars, speaking of Canadians, they're bringing in William Shatner to host his own show. So they're creating their own television network, as it were, online 24-7 that you pay for, by the way. You pay for four bucks a month to get access to this. So if you're a passionate alcohol, you know, connoisseur, wine, beer, et cetera, that's something you might want to subscribe to. And it's, it's, they're looking at it like a product and an experience they can create for their customers. I think it's a great corollary that you bring up. Nice. That's awesome. It's sort of like uh, we're coming full circle, but in a kind of evolved way in a different medium. And um, speaking of, of Netflix, well, one, I'm going to check out that brewery because that sounds amazing. Um, but also speaking of Netflix, even their successes and failures have been really well documented. Um, so I think it's fascinating to see how even they've evolved and they've had to switch their strategy and they've had to um, kind of readjust as they go. So even though they've been on this path and they've had this definitive, here are the next steps for us, they've had to kind of adjust as they went too. They haven't yeah, oh, only, of course. They haven't had yeah. 75 Stranger Things. They've had you yeah. know, <laughs> lots of cancellations in between and lots of flops. That's right. Well, the, and the and the funny thing is, is that you know, you know, this is often uh, a question I'll, I'll I'll ask too in in a workshop, which is, tell me what their successful shows are, and everybody goes, oh, of course, this well, Stranger Things and Narcos and all these wonder things, and you know, and I'll say, you know, uh, House of Cards, all that, and I'll say, here's the here's the real answer, you don't know. You, you don't know because they don't share that data. They don't share what's popular or not. They cancel stuff, I'm sure, that is very popular <clears throat> where the costs just out, you know, outpaced the, 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 you know, the, the net revenue that they were getting from new subscribers. Daredevil. I'm sure they've also canceled things that are, you know, that are unpopular and, and that didn't work. By creating their own first-party data that they don't, and it's, by the way, this is, you know, living here in Hollywood, this is giving Hollywood agents fits because normally you'd go in and renegotiate Kevin Spacey. Well, not maybe not Kevin Spacey these days, but certainly you know you'd renegotiate some stars, uh, you know, contract, and you'd have Nielsen ratings to point to and go, "Look, this is one of your most popular shows." Or you'd have box office to point to and go, "This was an amazing hit. You need to pay this person." With Netflix, they don't know. They don't. They don't know what the popularity is because Netflix just goes, "Nah, it's none of your business. We'll you know we'll pay what the market will pay." Nice. If only, if only we could all be so lucky with how we create our content as well. Unfortunately, <laughs> well, we can. This is our opportunity, right? And by the way, for us in the states, I would argue this is our responsibility. You know, when we start looking at things like net neutrality, and we start looking mm-hmm. at things like the the shrinking of the internet, the shrinking of the web to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, you know, Netflix, etc., where it is our responsibility to try and diversify that because the more diversified the web is, the more niche we create these audiences in different places, the more opportunities we have to find those audiences and persuade them to do the things we want them to do. Not to get all political or anything. <laughs> no, I think I think it's great. And honestly, I could sit here and talk content with you all day. I'm sure Randy could as well. But I really feel like that that solid gold that you just dropped is the perfect place to unfortunately wrap our conversation today. Robert, seriously, thank you so much for being on. This is fantastic. I loved digging into the nitty gritty with you um, and picking your brain about some things. You are going to be at several conferences coming up. Where can people go chat with you more um, about content? Oh, you're so kind. Thank you for that. Um, so <laughs> if you know the, the website is contentadvisory.net. 
um, which is uh, my my little corner of consulting advisory and the education stuff we do as part of the Content Marketing Institute. And of course, yes, the conference that's coming up that, uh, that we'll be at is uh, April 8th through 10th um, in San Diego. It's called Content Tech. Content Tech Summit, uh, and it's uh, contenttechsummit.com. And that is just a wonderful place to learn about the new technologies that are happening and all of the wonderful things that are happening as part of the content stack for marketers that that are out there. And of course, it's my little show. I'll be keynoting. We have Henry Rollins, which is awesome. Um, I get to interview Henry Rollins, which is just going to be amazing. And last time I saw Henry Rollins, I was well, let's just put it in this way. I was in a different state of mind <laughs> watching him. Uh, and now I'll get to see him sober for the second time in 20 years. And, and, uh, and uh, yeah, it, uh, it's going to be a fun, it's going to be a fun few days. I am so unbelievably jealous and low key <laughs> obsessed with Henry Rollins, but that's another podcast entirely. Um, so everybody go, <laughs> go to content tech, go see Robert, go see him interview Henry Rollins, follow Robert on all of the channels and do all of the things. Um, but Robert, before we officially <laughs> let you go, so we got to know a bit of the professional side of you. We'd love for you to stick around so we could chat um, some fun personal side. How's that sound? That sounds awesome. Awesome. All right, everybody, stick around for just a few more minutes, and we are going to have some fun getting to know you questions with Robert. All right, Robert, we get to have some fun now. We've got two or three minutes left, and uh, it's, it's now the day after Super Bowl. By the time people listen to this, well, you know, this podcast will live on. So we'll, we'll have to just remember that Brady won his sixth uh, in 18 years. We, we have to date this because for all we know, he'll have his seventh next year. But uh, how, first of all, I know you're in the LA area. Was this a hard day? It's a new team out there. It is a new team. Um, it is not a hard day for me, um, okay. as I am not an LA Rams fan. Um, I come from Texas, grew up in Texas. And so um, the one thing that I retained um, from moving from Texas is my affiliation to the Dallas Cowboys, um, which now you've just lost every 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 one of your audience members they've just all they've just all rage quit at, at that so yes so for my team I did did relatively well i will tell you the city here today is in mourning the three i think there's three or four fans here in los angeles of the rams um they're all in mourning i'm kidding i kid because i love la i kid because i love um yeah it's uh it, but congrats to the patriots they did it i mean it's unbelievable you know what bill belichick and and, and tom brady have done over the last 18 years has just been unbelievable. Oh, it's wild. I mean, you know, one out of two Super Bowls they were in and one out of three Super Bowls they won. I mean, that's that's insane. Yeah, uh, it's, a, you know, it's an insane statistic that they've, you know, not, you know, nine Super Bowls and they've won six. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah, like if, if I had that type of success with ebooks that we wrote here, I mean, <laughs> be legendary. Uh, so I, I'm curious, <laughs> when you have your, your Super Bowl parties, uh, you know, what are you responsible for bringing from a food perspective? Uh, and, uh, you know, do you watch the commercials? So two questions that we're just going to get to know you on. And maybe this past year, what was your favorite commercial? Okay. So the, from the food perspective, I am, my favorite food on the entire planet is Mexican food. So you can just imagine the spread that is there. Nice. Um, it wasn't this year. This year was very quiet um, here in the Rose household when it comes to the the big game, but it'll be a, some sort of a flight of tequila 
and guacamole and chips and tacos and all kinds of things are that's that will be the 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 food du jour and it will be stuff that I make. On the commercial side, yes, I do. I restrain myself from live tweeting or live facebooking it because I just find that kind of annoying. But uh, I will tell you, I think my favorite commercial was the, I mean, it sounds weird. I just loved the cinematography of it was the, the uh, I think it was a Budweiser ad for that used the Bob Dylan song in the background. I, I thought that was really well done. I think the, the Washington Post, of course, democracy you know, dies great. in the dark thought that was amazing. And um, I thought uh, ultimately the the football, the NFL 100 was probably a, a, just a, a wonderful, funny, you know, classic Super Bowl kind of kind of ad. And then I thought there were a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of fails, hashtag fails as well. No, it's, it sounds like, yeah, true to you, you, you fall in love with the stories that are told. I, I thought you were lining up your favorite food with the fact that there was a lot of avocado commercials. There were. I just thought those were weird. I mean, they're 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 classically weird, but they but I thought they went like a little too far this time. I mean, not not too far, like oh, it's too far, but like you know, just like okay, you know, it, now it looks like you're trying. Excess. Yeah, yeah. I, I always wonder, like, if you're the avocado company, is that the best use of your money? Like, is it like hold everything we're doing? I'm going to buy avocados. I yeah. always understand the okay. I'm going to order a Domino's pizza right now because it's almost halftime, but like not, I'm going to go out and see if there's any ripe avocados and make some, make some uh, guacamole. There's some, there's out. some amazing statistic about the amount of guacamole that is consumed on Super Bowl Sunday. And it's an astronomical amount. I mean, it's, it, it's a, it's a make your eyes pop amount. <laughs> awesome. Well, Robert, this has been a ton of fun. As, as Anna said earlier, we could chat with you all day about content and you know, encourage people to go out to content tech and, uh, where was it in San Diego this year? San Diego, beautiful, warm, lovely San Diego. There you go. I would try and do a Ron San Ber- Diego. Yeah, I was going to uh, go Ron Burgundy. <laughs> yeah. I was just going to blow it. You, you rocked it. Uh, thanks so much. Until next time, I, we thank everyone for tuning in. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe wherever you do. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, iTunes, of course, anywhere you get your podcasts. Please leave us a review when you can. Until next time, on behalf of Anna, I'm Randy, and this is the Content Experience Podcast. This is Jay Bear, and thanks for listening to the Content Experience Show. Please leave a review and subscribe on iTunes or on your favorite podcast listening app. Go to contentexperienceshow.com for a complete show archive and greatest hits. That's contentexperienceshow.com. The Content Experience Show is sponsored by Convince and Convert Consulting and by Uberflip. It's produced by my team and I at Convince and Convert. If you're interested in being a guest or a sponsor on the show, just go to convinceandconvert.com.